0: Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirweb.org kinkedwire This episode provides audio abstracts of papers published in the December 2022 issue of SIR's Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. You can find the full papers on jvir.org. My name is Daniel Kim. Hello, my name is Daniel Kim, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled, Healthcare Disparities in Interventional Radiology by Trevady and colleagues. Racial, ethnic, and sex-based healthcare disparities have been documented for the past several decades. Nonetheless, disparities remain firmly entrenched in our care delivery systems with multiple contributing factors, including patient interactions with care providers, systemic barriers to access and socioeconomic determinants of health, among others. Interventional radiology is also subject to these drivers of health inequity. In this review, documented disparities for the most common conditions being addressed by interventional radiologists are summarized. Their magnitude is quantified where relevant and underlying drivers are identified. Specific examples are provided to illustrate how medical, cultural, and socioeconomic factors interact to produce unequal outcomes. By outlining known disparities and common contributors, this review aims to motivate future efforts to mitigate them.
1: Hello, my name is Ramel Noche, and I'm a third-year medical student at Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. I will be reading the abstract titled, Transarterial embolization of neovascularity for refractory nighttime shoulder pain: A multicenter open-label feasibility trial by Okuno and colleagues. Purpose: To assess the feasibility of transarterial embolization or TAE for recalcitrant nighttime shoulder pain in a multicentric study. Materials and methods: This prospective open-label feasibility trial Included one hundred patients treated at five institutions. TAE was performed in seventy-six patients with adhesive capsulitis and twenty-four patients with symptomatic rotator cuff tears. The ipsilateral radial artery was punctured, and impenum plus cilostatin sodium was infused as an embolic agent. Adverse events: ten-point pain numerical rating scale, range of motion of the shoulder joint, and quality of life. Via the EuroQual 5D or EQ5D were evaluated. Results. All patients exhibited neovascularity on baseline angiography, and all TAE procedures were performed successfully. No patient experienced a major adverse event. The mean nighttime numerical rating scale scores at baseline and 1, 3, and 6 months after TAE were 6.4, 3.4, and 1.6, respectively. The mean range of motion of anterior elevation at baseline and 1, 3, and 6 months after TAE were 97 degrees, 119 degrees, 135 degrees, and 151 degrees, respectively. The mean EQ5D scores at baseline and 1, 3, and 6 months after TAE were 0.63 0.73, 0.80, and 0.84, respectively. There was no significant difference in the clinical success rate between the adhesive capsulitis and symptomatic rotator cuff tear groups. Conclusions. TAE for nighttime shoulder pain caused by adhesive capsulitis and symptomatic rotator cuff tears was feasible with sufficient safety and efficacy.
2: Hello, my name is Leanne Liu and I am a second year medical student at the University of California Davis School of Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled Utilization of and Outcomes Associated with Intravascular Ultrasound During Deep Venous Stent Placement Among Medicare Beneficiaries by Devakaran and colleagues. Purpose to evaluate temporal trends Practice variation and associated outcomes with the use of intravascular ultrasound during deep venous stent placement among Medicare beneficiaries. Materials and methods. All lower extremity deep venous stent placement procedures performed between January 1, 2017 and December 31, 2019 among Medicare beneficiaries were included. Temporal trends in intravascular ultrasound use were stratified by procedural setting and physician specialty. The primary outcome was a composite of 12-month all-cause mortality, all-cause hospitalization, or repeat target vessel intervention. The secondary outcome was a composite of 12-month stent thrombosis, embolization, or restenosis. Results Among the 20,984 deep venous interventions performed during the study period, 15,184, or 72.4%, utilized intravascular ultrasound. Moderate growth in intravascular ultrasound use was observed during the study period in all clinical settings. There was a variation in the use of intravascular ultrasound among all operators, with a median of 77.3% of cases and interquartile range of 20% to 99.2%. In weighted analyses, intravascular ultrasound use during deep venous stent placement was associated with a lower risk of both the primary and secondary composite endpoints. Conclusions Intravascular ultrasound is frequently used during deep venous stent placement among Medicare beneficiaries with further increase in use from 2017 to 2019. The utilization of intravascular ultrasound as part of a procedural strategy was associated with a lower cumulative incidence of adverse outcomes after the procedure, including venous stent thrombosis and embolization. Hello, my name is Brisha Kowalczyk and I'm a
3: fourth year medical student at St. Louis University School of Medicine. I will be reading the abstract title, Midterm and long-term outcomes following dedicated endovenous Nitinol stent placement for a symptomatic iliofemoral venous obstruction. Three to five year results of the Verdes study by Razavi and colleagues. Purpose to assess the midterm patency and long-term safety of placement of a dedicated venous stent for the treatment of venous lesions of the iliofemoral upload tract. Materials and methods. Patients with unilateral obstructive disease of the iliofemoral veins and the clinical etiological, anatomical, pathophysiological class of 3 or higher, or a venous clinical severity score of 2 or greater were enrolled in this prospective, multi-center, single-arm study at 23 sites in the United States and Europe. The patients were followed up for 36 months after the index procedure for the assessment of patency and up to 60 months for the assessment of safety. The clinical outcomes in 11 patients with a stent fracture were assessed. Results. A total of 200 patients enrolled in two cohorts were combined for this analysis. The overall 36-month primary patency rate was 71.7%, and the 36-month primary patency rate was 96.4% for the non-thrombotic group and 64.1% for the post-thrombotic group. The freedom from major adverse events was 81.2% through 60 months. The 16-month Kaplan-Meier estimate of RITA from target vessel revascularization was 84.3%. In 9 of the 11 patients who had a stent fracture identified at 12 months, which include 1 patient with non-thrombotic etiology and 10 patients with post-thrombotic etiology, the stents extended into the common femoral vein. The target vessel revascularization rates and clinical outcomes were similar between patients with and without a stent fracture. Conclusions. The results of the Virta study demonstrated good midterm patency and long-term safety following the placement of a dedicated venous set for iliofemoral obstruction.
4: Hello, my name is Dave Clearfield and I'm the managing editor of JVIR. I will be reading the abstract titled CT-guided celiac ganglion block for neurogenic gastrointestinal dysmotility by Frangicus and colleagues. Purpose to determine whether celiac ganglion block can serve as a diagnostic test for dysautonomia as the cause of gastrointestinal dysmotility-related symptoms. Materials and Methods This was an Institutional Review Board-approved prospective single-arm registered study from January 2020 to May 2021, and included patients aged 14 to 85 years with gastrointestinal symptoms of food intolerance, abdominal pain, or angina. Patients with non-neurogenic causes, i.e. chronic cholecystitis, peptic ulcer disease, gastroesophageal reflux, and malabsorption syndrome were excluded. All 15 patients underwent computed tomography-guided celiac ganglion block with 100 mg of liposomal bupivacaine. Patients filled at dysautonomia-validated questionnaire composite autonomic symptom score 31, COMPAS-31, before and after intervention. Differences, before versus after, were compared with the exact permutation method. 15 women, median age 17 years, range 14 to 41 years, were included. Average Compass 31 score improved significantly, from baseline 11, standard deviation plus or minus 2.8, to 4, standard deviation plus or minus 1.9, improvement 7 points plus or minus 2.8, with a p-value of less than .001. All patients reported significant reduction in abdominal angina. 14 of the 15 patients, 93%, reported complete resolution, and 14 of 15, 93%, reported a significant reduction in non-postprandial abdominal pain, p-value of less than 0.01. Only one patient reported no improvement. Eight of these 14 patients, 57%, reported complete resolution of abdominal pain. There was a significant improvement in functional scores, vomiting, p-value equal to 0.01, constipation frequency, p-value equal to 0.02, constipation severity, p-value less than 0.01, and nausea, p-value less than 0.01. The rate of minor and major adverse events was 13% and 0% respectively, per the Society of Interventional Radiology Adverse Event Classification. Conclusions Celiac ganglion block is a safe diagnostic tool for confirming dysautonomia as the underlying condition in patients with gastrointestinal dysmotility-related symptoms. It could provide early diagnosis, lead to definitive treatment, ganglionectomy, earlier, or obviate unnecessary surgery.
5: Hello, my name is Eric Cooper, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I will be reading the abstract titled, Transarterial Radioembolization for Hepatic Metastases of Pancreatic Adenocarcinoma, a Systematic Review, by Alexander and colleagues. Purpose. To assess the safety and effectiveness of transarterial radioembolization, or TARE, in the treatment of hepatic metastases from pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, or PDAC. Materials and Methods. A systematic search of the mBase and Medline databases was conducted using keywords and medical subject headings terms related to tear and hepatic metastases from PDAC. Observational studies and clinical trials reporting overall survival, hepatic progression free survival, or tumor response after tear were included. Results Eight studies comprising 145 patients with metastatic PDAC met the inclusion criteria. No randomized control trials were identified, and four studies were prospective. 44 patients underwent previous pancreatic resection, and 66 had extrahepatic metastases at the time of tear. Most studies used resin microspheres for tear. The pooled disease control rate was 69.4% at a median of three months. The median overall survival from the time of tear ranged from 3.7 to 9 months. The median hepatic progression-free survival ranged from 2.4 to 5.2 months. There were 31 grade 3 to 4 biochemical toxicities and 4 treatment-related deaths. Conclusions The role of TER in patients with hepatic metastases from PDAC remains unclear owing to low patient numbers, limited perspective data, and heterogeneity in the study design. Further prospective studies are required to evaluate the role of tear in carefully selected patients with liver-only metastatic disease.
6: Hello, my name is Siddhi Hegde, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Mass General Hospital. I will be reading the abstract titled Transarterial Radioembolization vs. Transarterial Chemoembolization Plus Percutaneous Ablation for Unresectable Solitary Hepatocellular Carcinoma of 3 cm or Greater, a Propensity Score Match Study by you and colleagues purpose to compare the safety and effectiveness of transarterial radioembolization or tear and transarterial chemoembolization or taste with drug eluting embolic agents combined with percutaneous ablation in the treatment of treatment naive unresectable solitary hepatocellular carcinoma or hcc greater than or equal to 3 cm materials and methods 29 patients with treatment-naive, unresectable, solitary HCC of 3 cm or greater received combined taste plus ablation, and 40 patients received tear at a single institution. Local tumor response, tumor, progression-free survival, overall survival, need for re-intervention, bridge-through transplant, and major complications were compared. Clinical variables and outcomes were compared before and after propensity score matching or PSM. Results? Before PSM, patients who underwent tear had a larger tumor size, that is, 3.7 versus 5.5 centimeters, and were older with ages 61.5 versus 69.3 years. After PSM, there was no difference in baseline characteristics between the two groups, with mean tumor sizes measuring 3.9 and 4.1 cm in the taste plus ablation and tear cohorts, respectively. After PSM, no statistically significant difference was observed in local radiological response. Survival, progression free survival, bridge through transplant, and major adverse event rates between the two groups. The mean total number of local regional interventions was higher in the taste plus ablation cohort with an earlier median reintervention trend. Conclusions. The present study showed that tear and the combination of taste and ablation are comparable in safety and effectiveness for treating treatment naive, unresectable, solitary at CC greater than or equal to three centimeters.
7: Hello. My name is Benjamin Miller, and I'm a third-year medical student at Chicago Medical School. I will be reading the abstract titled Prosthetic Artery Embolization Versus Transurethral Resection of the Prostate for Benign Prosthetic Hyperplasia, a Cost-Effectiveness Analysis by Wu and colleagues. Purpose. To compare the cost-effectiveness of prosthetic artery embolization, or PAE, with that of Transurethral Resection of the Prostate, or TERP, for the treatment of medically refractory benign prosthetic hyperplasia, or BPH. Materials and methods. A cost effectiveness analysis with Markov modeling was performed comparing the clinical course after PAE with that after TERP for three years. Probabilities were obtained from the available literature and costs were based on Medicare reimbursements and published cost analyses. Outcomes were measured using quality adjusted life year. Statistical analyses included base case calculation, probabilistic sensitivity analysis and deterministic sensitivity analysis to assess the robustness of the conclusion under different clinical scenarios. Results. Base case calculation showed comparable outcomes with a cost difference of $3,104. The incremental cost-effectiveness ratio was $360,249 per quality-adjusted life year. PAE was dominant in 23.2% and more cost-effective in 48.4% in the probabilistic sensitivity analysis simulations. PAE was better if its recurrence risk was less than 20.4% per year, and even when the TURP recurrence risk was assumed to be 0%. TERP would be more cost-effective when its procedural cost was less than $3,367, or the PAE procedural cost was greater than $4,409. PAE remained cost-effective when varying the risks and costs of the minor and major short-term or long-term adverse events of both procedures. TERP would be the better strategy if the utility of BPH recurrence was less than 0.85 at quality adjusted life years. Conclusions: PAE is a cost-effective strategy to treat medically refractory BPH resulting in comparable health benefits at a lower cost than that of TERP, even when accounting for extreme alterations in adverse events costs and recurrence rates.
0: We thank all the medical students who helped with this episode. My name is Daniel Kim. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I was your audio editor for this episode. The research from this episode appears in the December 2022 issue of JVIR, and you can visit jvir.org for the full papers, other audio content, and much more.